Hello and welcome back to Pod Sequentialism with Matt Kennedy. I am your host, Matt Kennedy. And today I have a very special guest, Mr. Jeff Krellitz, who is the owner and publisher of Heavy Metal Magazine now, correct? Uh, the co-CEO. Co-CEO. Now, the um, there's always a lot of... Um, tie-in whenever I have a guest on where we know somebody who knows somebody or it's somebody that I've known for a very long time. What's interesting is that we just happen to be in the same space and we're introduced by our mutual friend Gaston here at Meltdown Comics, but that you've employed several friends of mine and have featured a lot of the artists that we represent at La Luz de Jesus in the pages of heavy metal people like Christopher Ulrich and Dave Lebo and others. But um, heavy metal is such a great touchstone for people um, well, I'm 45, so people my age, you know, the original heavy metal, that bringing it back into the publication it is now, which is very much a step forward, taking that tribute to what it originally was and moving forward, that I have to I have to guess that it was not easy to do. And I want to ask you how it came to happen. Um, uh, transitioning the magazine into, into the next step? Yeah, and how did you come to be involved? Um. Well, Kevin Eastman, who is our publisher, uh, I had known, um, and you know, heavy metal to me. I grew up reading Metal Herlant when I was a little boy. Mm-hmm. Uh, we would travel around Europe, and I, I didn't actually know, um, I didn't know French. So I used to make up stories for what was in there. My brothers were ten years older than I was, so they thought mm-hmm. it was. I did uh, the same thing with manga that my sister brought back from Okinawa. Oh, really? That's yep. awesome. Yep. Uh, yeah, my, my brothers thought it was hilarious to give me uh, comic books that had nudity and ultraviolence. Yes. Um, so I grew up a little faster, you know, just because I, I kind of skipped over American comics. I wasn't really into them. Mm-hmm. Um, actually, my first real comic that I cared about uh, for superheroes was Arkham Asylum by Grant. Yeah. Um, and that kind of led to The Dark Knight, and that got me into Frank Miller. And I, I was always very kind of limited with U.S. creators and always gravitated more towards European. So you grew up on Mobius and Bilal and all these, all these amazing European Fumetti and Bon Dessine artists um, and seeing it in the original, well, not necessarily the original language because some of those guys are Italian, but um, seeing it in Metal Hurlant and, um, and getting it in those pages in that, di- in that kind of episodic form is a very different way than a lot of Americans were receiving their comics in kind of like these these full-on single-issue dose, doses. And it's a very different type of storytelling. Uh, it, it is. The way that they were, I mean, having now talked to many of the original creators and obviously speaking to Mobius before he passed away, mm-hmm. um, that was their playground because they didn't have anywhere else to go. Mobius was doing things like Blueberry. Yeah. And really, they had to start their own publishing company to be able to do what they wanted and where their passions lied. Mm-hmm. And when um, Len Mogul, who was at the time the owner of National Lampoon, was in Paris and saw Metal or Lawn, he felt that it was a great title to tap into what was kind of the, the sci-fi movement, which was funny because if you look at what was going on with science fiction in the early 70s, late 60s, it was kind of on the downward spiral. Yeah. And we came out the month before Star Wars. Yeah. So fortunately, 1977 was a great year because two things happened that, you know, one uh, one piggybacked off the other. Yeah. Obviously, we, we piggybacked off Star Wars. Yeah. Um, but it was a very different, um, it was a very different kind of storytelling in that it was just very visceral and very emotional and it didn't deal with the the black and white of good versus evil. Mm-hmm. 
it dealt with what was everything that was gray, everything that was in between, and you know, morality tales and uh, emotional tales and doubt and you know, very sophisticated, very sophisticated ideas. And I think you know, uh, for many years, as Kevin bought the magazine, and I think that some of the older crew that had started in the '70s and '80s kind of phased out. Yeah, there were a couple of people that were holdovers. And that's when you started to see a lot of cheesecake on the cover. Yeah. But if you actually open those issues up, some of the most beautiful stories that heavy metal ever did are in those pages during yeah. those years. Because Kevin, uh, there would be no heavy metal had it not been for Kevin Eastman. Yeah, for sure. Buying it, saving it, you know, preserving it for so many years. And the one, the one real thing that I saw when we came to it was, this is something that you know these few guys started in France, but then it was handed over kind of the reins to Americans. So you had a mixture of European and American content for a while. And then the movie came out and you saw a little more TNA influence mm-hmm. in it. Um, but the one thing that was always consistent was the art quality was always high. Um, even if the story wasn't, the art quality was high. And one of the things that I said uh, you know, to Grant, because we were at his place in Los Angeles, and we were having too many drinks. This is all good things. To, you know, usually For those start that who, way. who don't know who we're talking about, we are, of course, talking about Grant Morrison. <laughs> yes. yes. Sorry, Grant Morrison, our, our now editor-in-chief. And Grant and I were just kind of dissecting the magazine. He was really telling me what he would do differently. And, you know, he, he was really focusing on the writing. And I said, well, that's kind of it. The art has to match the writing yeah. for us to move forward and to give it a fresh voice. And I called Kevin up, and I said, I'm going to throw an idea your way. I have no idea how you'll respond. And I said, what do you think about Grant Morrison coming in as editor-in-chief? And there was this long pause. I'm like, I clearly fucked up. And then he goes, most brilliant fucking yeah, idea amazing. ever. And I was yeah. like, oh, the, okay, good. Well, now, now we know who to thank. Um, well, you can thank Grant because it's all him. <laughs> uh, but they're, they're actually uh, collaborating on a story that will be in the December issue that Kevin's drawing that Grant wrote. Oh, wow. It's going to be pretty amazing. It's been but, a while since Kevin's put uh, pen to paper, though, right? No, he does a lot of stuff on the Turtles. Okay. And, you know, he's done a couple of other side projects. Los Angeles, um, I think Fistful of Blood was another one that he has out. He does a lot with IDW, too. Okay, like that's right. Like his original right. series, usually. But inside Heavy Metal, it's this is kind of this is a new thing for him, correct? He's never done a sequential inside Heavy yeah. Metal. In fact, the second cover he's ever done is uh, one of the variants for 282, which is his wife, Courtney. Wow, wow. Yeah. See, now, I grew up in New England, and so I remember seeing Sorry, 281. <laughs> Peter and Kevin at conventions with their self-published Teenage Mutant Ninja Turtles. <laughs> you know, before you it blew up, I, I, I paid my, my way across country with um, Teenage Mutant Ninja Turtles 1, 2, and 3, um, not first, not even first printings, but like second printings. Because by the time I came out in to LA in the early '90s, they had hit that point where they were like the king of the indies, and they had already gotten their deal for the cartoon and then the movies and stuff. That that stuff was all happening, and um, and they didn't change. They were still great guys. I mean, you could talk to them about absolutely anything. So, still are. Yeah, I, I would imagine. And I remember sitting next to those guys at a really slow convention where I was selling comics. You know, I had my long boxes, and I was a teenage kid selling comics in Boston and it was like it it wasn't at the hotel it was supposed to be at so it was confusion and they were just like 
you want us to draw anything? And I was like, oh, yeah, yeah, sure. Um, draw Boris the bear on fire, you know? And so they, they drew, like, Leonardo from the Turtles, like, hitting Boris the bear with a, um, you know, a flamethrower with the caption, <laughs> remember, boys and girls, only you can prevent Boris fires. And I, I, I still have that drawing. I still That has made every move I've ever made. I've lost many of the things that I treasure. I still have that drawing. But the um, they were just always really down to earth, and they were doing something new. And the first time I saw coverage of Teenage Mutant Ninja Turtles was in Heavy Metal Magazine. And it was in an editorial probably 1985. And it was probably an issue that had um, the hunting party serialized, um, six characters in search of an author, the Milo Manara, which had been a retitle of... Um, his uh, one of his long running erot- the Bergman series. I'm just trying to think what's on the cover of that issue. I think it's um, a 1950s robot couple on a space moped, if I recall. In 85. 85. It's 85 or 86. I think it's 85 because it was before the it, turtles went into. They're not into... robots, but there's a space moped and it's kind of National Lampoony. Is that what you're thinking of? Maybe, yeah. I think that's February 85. That makes sense. Yeah. And see, I couldn't always get heavy metal because the woman at the local grocery market would sometimes judge that it was indeed too adult for me. And so I would have to wait and hide around the corner until she went to grab milk and then buy it from her son who would sell me the magazine because it didn't have a for mature readers um, audience on it yet. Well, that that woman clearly moved into the correctional system because my favorite (laughs) emails that I get forwarded to me and I say, always, please, please send these to me because they're too entertaining, are from prisoners who get the magazine because you're not allowed to have any graphic photographs, but if it's drawn, that's okay. And because occasionally we'll have nudity in the magazine, prisoners get it. And we just put the sex issue out in issue 281. And there's this flood of emails like, ah, we opened this up and unfortunately we're not going to allow the inmates to have, (laughs) and it's just that that's a proud moment when you knew you, you, you were just too good for prison. That's amazing. That's amazing. Well, again, you know, the um, with with Kevin, he did absolutely come in as as sort of like uh, the captain of the ship when it was going to go down. Um, I was also a huge fan of National Lampoon and um, great documentary. You know, the um, the Drunk Stone, Brilliant Dead, and um, based on the book about the offices at National Lampoon. And at that time, when heavy metal got got swallowed up, that magazine didn't survive because it was unable to kind of transverse that new spectrum of the 1980s, whereas heavy metal started to kind of do really better to a certain point. And then the collapse of comic books in general in the early 90s caused a little bit of a reset, but it still stayed strong. And I think that now with Grant back, well, Grant in in an editorial position, that his degree of sophistication seems to match everybody our age, our memory of the sophistication of heavy metal magazine when we were kids. And so it's kind of like when you go back and look at stuff sometimes, stuff that you really, really loved and you look at it like, oh, wow, this this really wasn't that. Heavy metal always really was that. And it's now that again, even though we're 30 years older. Well, th- uh, there's definitely a level of sophistication. But the one thing to remember about heavy metal is Ever since the movie especially, Mm -hmm. which were made by brilliantly funny people, and that's what they had done before, was that it was a good time. It was fun. It took really... I mean, think about it. In So Beautiful, So Dangerous, this girl's abducted from her job at the Pentagon into an alien ship and told she's never going home again. And she goes off and has sex with the equivalent of a loudspeaker. 
Wow. Right? Not and, my old job. Right. No, it's, it will, you know, it, uh, hopefully we can all aspire. But that story is a really horrific scenario. You're you're not going home. You're stuck. You're now going out to space. Yeah. And then the guys taking you there are, you know, doing a ton of space blow in the front. Like, it's so beyond the level of, like, obviously, you know, the book is both sophisticated and funny, the original one by Angus Mackay. But it, they had fun with it, and one of the big things that we said coming into this was, we have to have a good time. Yeah. If you don't laugh a couple of times reading through it, then it's a fail. Right. And the first couple of stories that Grant did, Beachhead, uh, and then Option 3, which is like a Star Trek send-up that's in the current issue, mm-hmm. and then uh, Industria, which is coming out in 282 this month, those all are a lot of fun. And then in October, he has a story called Smile the Absent Cat about the life of Louis Wayne mm-hmm. that he's doing with Gerhardt. Mm-hmm. That's like very, very artistic, very sophisticated. Um, then the Savage Sword of Jesus Christ is December, which is both hilarious and also it's based in truth on propaganda. So this is very much kind of like the um, the mental sequel, if you will, to the work that Grant was doing at Crisis yes. in the UK. So the new adventures of Adolf Hitler and like, you know, this, this like really outrageous stuff. And um, and I think, again, it's like the, the Brits were kind of the guys that took the flame, you know, from the the French uh, bande dessinée artists and the Italian fumetti guys. And in a way, because manga has, has been that filler for people for a long time who are looking for sophisticated science fiction and more adult themes that and and humor, you know, that most people who, who read manga love the humor of manga, yeah. that um, there's this great new porridge, you know, this great new stew that, that um, you can pull from, that you can add to. But what do you think of the greatest challenges? Like, what, what do you think? is the biggest challenge for heavy metal magazine as we sit in a you know in a a pretty forward-thinking comic store in 2016 um well i i think there are three challenges that any branded content that's been around for any period of time faces right now Mm -hmm. it's one you're simply for as a as a brand you're competing with marvel you're competing with dc you're competing with media dollars which are Mm -hmm. spending tens of millions of dollars to create awareness, yeah, that that's the number one thing, um, and because you know there was heavy metal two thousand in two thousand, which mm-hmm. unfortunately didn't perform, and that people looked to the eighty one, the eighty one kind of becomes a touchstone, and globally, even when I talk, you know, about licensing the magazine for foreign languages, in France it was funny. I was like, so do you translate the title because you can't call it Metal Herlant? They're like, oh well, we wouldn't want to do that anyway because heavy metal is bigger. And I said, what do you mean? They said, well, because the genre of music and the movie, everybody knows that movie. The term, right. yeah. So that, I think, is is one of the biggest things, is you're fighting against media dollars. Two, there's perception, which is, for a long time, it kind of stepped into the shadows. Mm-hmm. And people, it's funny, when when some of, like, uh, Stoya wrote a story that Dean Haspiel drew in the last issue— I saw a lot of like thousands of people were liking it on her Instagram and people were like, oh, wow, they're printing it again. Just the awareness wasn't out there because they didn't do the marketing. Right. Um, this is the adult film star Stoya. Yes. Yeah. So who's also, you know, a journalistic blogger who does yeah. the New York Times and Vice and the Village Voice. And she she what I liked about her, uh, you know, she's a friend and um, is actually the only person I know in that business because I really love her voice when she's talking about women's issues. Yeah. And I said, if anyone's going to talk about 
sex from that perspective. It's you because you have a very balanced perspective yeah. of the way that things are. Yeah, I saw something that she had written, um, maybe for the, maybe for the New York Times, that was. Um, I think she was one of the first voices to come out and talk about some controversy with uh, the other adult filmmaker, James Dean. And I was the first person to get awareness out about um, the different perceptions of adult industry. And it's still not that much better necessarily for women in the industry, even though there's more money. Mm -hmm. And um, it was incredibly well written and also told from the point of view of someone who knows. You know, and that's as good journalism comes from, you know, someone having access and someone having the right type of experience to know what the nuances are of the subject that they cover. So it's it's pretty great that you can be involved with people that have that kind of outreach in other formats, especially Vice, which you would have to think that Heavy Metal should be like the official comic book magazine of everybody who reads Vice. The right. sensibility is there. Well, we're from a lifestyle branding. We, uh, you know, Vice is really snarky. It's got yeah. a very different edge. Um, we we like to empower our audience. Yeah. Um, I, sometimes I'm reading Vice articles and I feel like I'm being talked down to because I'm not going to some place where it's yeah. going to smell and I'm going to get killed. Yeah, but then you turn the page and then it's like a really stupid review of, of you know, um, yeah. a but bad they, album. Yeah, but they do amazing <laughs> journalism. Yeah, yeah. So, I like, I, I love Vice. I think they're a great publication. Um, what, what I really liked about what Stoya was doing was if you ask her what she does for a living, her gut response is journalist. Cool. And it's, uh, what is the what is the name of the, I want to say Gloria Steinem, but I don't think it was, uh, the journalist who went inside a Playboy club and lived that lifestyle for a long time and then documented it and how difficult it was for women at the time. It might have been Gloria Steinem. If it, uh, maybe it was. Mm. Um, that, to me, is like the same way that she describes her adventures with sex and then the misconceptions and kind of calling people out for what you don't know and you should educate yourself. And there's not a whole lot of people – forget about the adult space. There's not yeah. a whole lot of people out there – crying for that and so she's really using her forum yeah and the story she did for us was all about how you can still have an intimate relationship with somebody and it doesn't just have to end it's you can be friends right right like it's about being mature about relationships and dean did it in a very sci-fi way but the message is all her it's it's kind of uh lyrical the way that she wrote it will you be bringing back people like jedorowski and doing serializing his work continuously uh, possibly. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, he's he's definitely someone we'd love to do more with. Yeah. Um, I know Sons of El Topo is coming, so that that's something potential. I know he's got some very distinct plans that he wants to do with that one. Um, there's, there's things that we want to do where it's about making sure we pay homage to the base mm-hmm. and to the founders, um, especially with the 40th anniversary coming up next year. Wow. Yeah. Um, that's a that's a big concern for me because a lot of those guys, some of them aren't drawing anymore or writing anymore, and you want to have. They all have story influences, so then it's about pairing them with writers who they like and artists who they like, where it's stories by them. So you're still having that tone. Like uh, in the upcoming issue, we have a story by Bill Sienkiewicz that mm-hmm. was published once in 1984 in Epic, and nobody knows where the art is, so it's never been republished until we got a hold of it and cleaned it up and yeah. putting it out just because some of those stories were amazing and this generation has never seen it but they know Bill they know yeah. his cover work that's amazing Bill, Bill Sienkiewicz is just fabulous we were just talking about Bill in the last uh, podcast that we did continue to talk about Bill I will always continue to talk about Bill genius 
He's amazing. And um trying to schedule him to come on the show as well. And, and it's just scheduling. He's he's a busy, busy guy. He's always working. But the um some of the other people that you've been bringing in, or I should say some of the other aspects of the magazine is that you are doing something that was a staple, not necessarily in every issue in, in the late 70s and early 80s, but something that I always looked forward to, and that was fine art profiles in the magazine, that you would dedicate space to contemporary fine artists that you think that the audience would appreciate. And, um, you know, I've seen whether it's um, Gail Pataki, um, and I think um, during Kevin's, um, when Kevin first took over the title, he did a, a great profile on Brahm, and I, I, I had bought the original uh, interview with H.R. Giger because it mm-hmm. was in Heavy Metal Magazine. I ended up writing his obit for High Fructose. Oh, wow. And I was requested by the Giger estate. So that all goes back to Heavy Metal Magazine. Like I, would ne- I, I bought, because I saw an ad in the back of Heavy Metal, the Necronomicon. Yeah, the cover and, in 1980? Yeah. And, and That's then, the uh, issue that Captain Stern's in. Yeah. Yeah. The right's in. One of my favorite artists of all time. And that ability to be able to continue with a voice that's as important to the original readership and new readers is really difficult to do. Um, and it seems like you're pulling it off really well. And it seems like the, the numbers are there, which is like the hardest part of publishing a comic, uh, you know, a, a sequential format that isn't in a comic book size and that people don't necessarily think of magazines as as collectible or didn't until recently so that you've by nature of being this this same thing that's different if you will and i know that doesn't sound like it makes sense but that it's it's really empowering to the fandom too well i think that's you know we discussed that with grant when he came on that his run would be for a set number of years and then his replacement would be someone similar to him like Mm -hmm. it would be you know a neil gaiman or a matt fraction or kelly sue deconic or you know, bring someone in that ultimately it's always keeping the voice fresh. It's always a different vision, but it's always a gateway into worlds that you didn't see before. Mm-hmm. And as you were talking about before, you know, when I came to the magazine, I saw that we had an artist studio and a gallery, mm-hmm. but they were both essentially an artist showcase. Yeah. So I was like, with the artist studio, I want to find out how, what's the process. Yep. How are they doing this? Where are they exhibiting? What are they doing it for? What drives and what's their passion? For the gallery, it's more about... Here's a gallery of a whole bunch of artists, which are legitimate galleries. We've had Corey Helford. Yep. Um, we had the Century Guild, uh, Threadless, who we did a giant competition mm-hmm. to find the three winners of the, you know, we had almost 1,100 people submit mm-hmm. for the cover gallery, which I was told we beat Marvel, uh, Star Trek, and Ninja Turtles was the the reigning champ before us. So Kevin, Kevin's now been on the two highest yeah. uh and you certainly suggests. had La Luz de Jesus Gallery. <laughs> yes. Um, but that's, I, I believe Morpheus is October. Oh, Is cool. our next one for the fear issue. Um, and it's about making sure that people know who's kind of the tastemaker out there in that specific genre. Yeah. Um, in that creative like space. Matthew Bone was our, uh, our our artist for the artist studio last issue. Mm-hmm. Um, there is, uh, oh, what is his name, Jacob... Uh, totally, I'm sorry, I'm blanking on it. Uh, he's a, this amazing concept designer that does these giant mech robots set against World War II scenario. It, oh, wow. It's just really beautiful. But he's the artist studio because he's a concept designer. Yeah. So we're moving more into concept designers. The issue after the October issue, we're starting the tattoo galleries mm-hmm. because we're all of those artists at one point come to you and say, 
it's because of this I do what I do. Yeah. This is what changed me because the, the typical transition is Superman, Batman, Spider-Man, Star Wars, heavy metal. Like that's that's kind of your brand identity from where you start reading, mm-hmm. um, and that's where a lot of people grew up. Was it was their dad, their brother, their uncle, their best friend? It's like, hey, you want to see something really cool? Yeah, that's the first time somebody handed you something. I mean, mine. I still remember my brothers handing it to me in like this French newsstand, and I remember the look on their face. I'll never forget. I was like five, and they just thought it was so funny, <laughs> and. Then I, I really wanted it because I wouldn't let it go. My older brother bought it for me, and they got me into like horror movies and sci-fi, and you know they were they were very influential in messing me up. That's good. So <laughs> they've done their job, and bravo. Well, it was very strange when we when we bought the company. You know, we have a warehouse of back issues dating all the way to the seventies that uh, is on heavymetal.com. Wow. And when we went through the first walkthrough, I was just looking at it. And I'm like, oh, my God, I remember that. Now I know why I like that. Now I know why I like that. And it was all of my influences. It's very rare that the specific moment at what defined a year in your life, you forget about that stuff when you're 10, 15, 16. And there they all were. I was like, oh, my God, that's that's why I like brunettes that year. It was like. I had a very similar experience walking through the um, Guillermo del Toro exhibition last week where um, in we I want to make it down there. Is that awesome? Oh my gosh! It's like it's like your ten year old it exploded with a huge budget, and <laughs> um, and then you had access to incredible fine art from you know the ages. There's there's pieces from you know Aubrey Beardsley stuff. I mean, just like amazing. The first time you read Edgar Allan Poe, you know, there, there's like the artists that were working on this book illustration and production design, and you know he's he's got original. Disney production design from, you know, Fantasia and then the Telltale Heart animated short from the 1950s in mm. amongst, you know, giant props and, um, you know, contemporary fine art that, that tends to be a little bit dark. I've been back twice and, um, you know, there's, we were able to loan out, uh, Chris Sapp and I were able to loan out some pieces for their comic book gallery in the back. And so it's great to be in like LACMA in a show that you're just like, oh my God, this is the greatest thing I've ever seen. And then have your name on the wall. Yeah. You know, it's just like the greatest thing in the world. But, you know. They had actually asked us for some vintage copies. And yeah. I'm like, I'd love to give them to you, but I don't have any. I'm like, they're yeah. sold out. They didn't ask me for um for heavy metal. Uh, it, maybe they thought that I had a specialized um collection of stuff. But I, I could have supplied a couple of things. The um the eerie and creepy wall and just like the, the Swamp Thing stuff that, that he was into. Bernie Wrights and stuff. Yeah. I mean, and he's got like 10 original Frankenstein Drawings, it, was, drawings. it was funny because Frank Darabont's a huge collector of Bernie Wrights, and recently mm-hmm. I had heard he was selling his his collection down at San Diego. Most of it was for sale, wow. and there were the Captain Stern pages because he bought them all from oh, Bernie a few years ago. Wow. So it was the first time, you know. And I, I went up to the guy. I was like, "Can I can I take a look at those?" And he said, "You know, we're really only taking them out for serious collectors." I said, "Well, I'm pretty serious." I'm one of the owners of Heavy Metal Magazine. Oh, he pulled it out <laughs> and he, he showed it to me because I really that that is you know the genesis of the influence of a lot of my childhood and it's yeah. it's funny because uh with Angus Mackay I you know I went up to visit him in Newcastle in England and we were talking about cuz I wanted to republish so beautiful so dangerous and I just mm-hmm. said so do you have film do you have how, what do you have the scans I said was the lettering separate he goes oh no 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 it's it's on the actual pages I was like oh I was like, okay, so can we track those down? He goes, oh, they're back at the house. You want to see them? He has all of the original pages of So Beautiful, So Dangerous. I said, you know, 
I think we should do a gallery show and sell these for you, Angus. Yeah. Um, which is what we're planning on doing in New York in the fall. Wow. So having a lot of the original art there, and um, I'm I'm really excited about it. But it was crazy to see those pages, which are big, beautiful painted pages, that you just you know so much stuff is done digitally now. Yeah, his like 16 by 20 right there. I mean, they're they're jumbo. They're huge. Yeah. yeah. Yeah, like they're frameable. Yeah. Like there's one page. It's the giant smiley ship over the the Pentagon. Wow. Yeah. The original wasn't over the Pentagon. I'm trying to remember what building it was. It was over the was the trade centers, I think. Wow. Yeah. Amazing. Well, what a long journey it's been. So uh, before we walked in here, though, and I'm not going to let you out until we cover this, and I, I and I, you've been very very gracious with your time, and I appreciate it. Um, we were outside in the in the shop, and um, and Gaston introduced us, and he mentioned that it all boiled down to you sitting down with a couple of friends. And deciding we're gonna start businesses and they're gonna be like this. And you do this, you do this, I'm gonna do this. Who were those people and what were the businesses? Oh, it wasn't that. It was um, when I started off in the business, I was at UCLA Mm -hmm. and I was an intern for Dick Donner. Mm -hmm. And I was the intern from UCLA and the intern from USC was Kevin Feige. What um, what film was uh, Richard Donner working on at the time? We were in prep on Assassins at the time. Okay. which was uh, which was interesting because the Wachowskis would be in the other room, and you know they were they kept on telling us about Matrix and how yeah. cool Matrix was because I think they sold that in '93 and this was '95. Wow. Um, and then Jeff was coming in just at the tail end of it, Jeff Johns mm-hmm. as Dick's second assistant. Uh, and then every once in a while we'd go to lunch, and you know Kevin would talk about the X Men figures, and he would be reading Toy Fair and. <laughs> You know, uh, Jeff would talk about the Green Lantern and how Keith Giffen's version was so cool and how he yeah. always loved Hal Jordan. And I was like, guys, it's a little nerdy. I'm into, <laughs> you know, music and girls. But I do like Heavy Metal Magazine. I'm like, that's – I'm, and we all ended up respectively running those companies. Kevin at Marvel, Jeff Johns, basically the architect of DC, and and you at Heavy Metal. Yeah. That's amazing. So we're, what, 10, 15 years behind them, but – Got some time to catch up. And you mentioned Matt Fraction earlier, who, when I was licensing stuff for Anchor Bay, would a- occasionally call up New Line, and he was answering the phones at New Line. That's funny. At a certain point. Yeah, Matt's Matt's a great writer. I love his stuff. I love his stuff. His Iron Man's incredible. Yeah. Yeah, yeah. Well, hey, man, thanks for coming in. Again, I know, I know you got a bolt, but um, you've been very gracious in coming in and talking with us about this. I knew that this is something that the people who love the show would, would enjoy hearing about. I talk about heavy metal. I talk about the influence it's had on me. And, you know, Grant is, is someone who comes up in conversation all the time. We're still trying to get him back on the show. And, um, you know, it's what an empire you've got. And there's, at this point in the creative cycle, I have to imagine that there's also going to be media coming out of this as well. You know, like motion picture media and television media, that has to be part of the bigger plan. Well, we've we've gone just a little bit further outside and are applying heavy metal is a brand to mean anything for the best horror science fiction and fantasy mm-hmm. so we like right now at Fremantle, we have uh the comic book roche limit is set up there as a tv show we actually sold dean Koontz's last book ashley bell the universal nice um we are doing some central brand things that we'll be talking about i'd say in the coming months mm-hmm. um but there's there's a lot going on that uh you know we've we've been discussing and thinking about but it's one of those things where I always think it's best to learn from others' mistakes than to continuously keep making your own. Yeah. So I've seen I've seen a lot of missteps, and when we do something, it was like, hey, we're going to re- push the magazine again. 
How are we going to convince people that it's really great? It's like, well, if it's really going to be great, then it needs to be great storytelling. And there is, in my mind, no better storyteller right now, (coughs) excuse me, than Grant. Yeah. Um, So to have him doing that and to really be pairing him up with different artists that he wouldn't normally work with at other publishers, that I think is a great gateway. And for people who haven't read Heavy Metal Magazine, you know, they always ask me what, what are, you know, when people walk up to us when we do shows, what's a great starting point? I'm like, if you've never read it before, I always pick up issue 280 from Grant. And I'm mm-hmm. like, this is an issue that will give you like a euphoric psychedelic feel to it. Yeah. You actually, I remember reading the first like rough of it. And I, I remember having a real like physical response Body to reaction, it. yeah. Yeah. And it, I, I'm like, wow, I feel like I, I feel like it did when I picked up the magazine when I was a kid. Yeah. And I like reading train spotting, you know, yeah. and like, yeah. Yeah. I mean, uh, Irvine Welsh's stuff is amazing. Um, but then a couple of reporters, two separate reporters said the same thing to me. They said, so independently, I just went and I picked up heavy metal and I'm a subscriber now. And I just want to let you know if heavy metal started today, it's the same feeling I would have got as when it started in the seventies or when I was picking it up in the eighties. And I was like, wow. And I immediately, you know, call Grant and I'm like, you won't believe like people really love what you're doing. Um, cause we've, we've been very conscious about not offending our, our subscribers and our fans that have been with us the whole time. I mean, there there are tons of people that'll walk up and be like, I have every issue you guys have ever put out. I have every variant I've ever... And it's like, well, we don't want to disappoint you by all of a sudden just switching gears so hard. Right. Um, so Grant's been amazing about that. Kevin's been fantastic about it. Uh, and, you know, for me, 280 is always a great issue to start with because it's the spring. It's about renewal. Um, and then issues from the past, like great issues, March 1985. Mm-hmm. That's got Jeff Darrow in it. That's yeah. got rock opera by Rod Kickegaard. Yeah, that's I, I. Of course, because I'd picked up February, March was the next one that came out. Yeah. That was the beginning of of my my reading the magazine in a regular it was a great capacity. Time. Yeah, and uh, um, oh my god, yeah, I remember that how busy the Jeff Darrow stuff was. The guys like Cuckoo, yeah, and and um everything in that. Like, and again, it was like. It was the greatest hit. Rebel, I think, might have started in that issue. My favorite classic issue of the past, which has the most interesting cover, it's um, two feudal Japanese people having sex, mm-hmm. very cartoony, and alien ships are just blowing up everything around them. And there's a Japanese, like a holy shit in in Japanese coming out of uh, the balloon. And I'm like, wow, that's that's a different cover than anything that came before or after. And you open it up, every influential creator is in March 1984. Yeah. Yeah. Mobius is in there. Drulet is in there. Corbin's in there. Yeah. Um, uh, Jodorowsky's in there. Everybody. Yeah. And I opened that up, and I'm like, oh, I think Liberatory's in there, too. Yeah. I think, uh, yeah, Ranks or Ox is in that one. Yeah. It's just like, wow, that's so... When people have come up, I'm always like, take this one and this one and see where it leads you. And then the next day, they would come back. They're like, so I read them last night. So do you have all of 1984? And then I have to get all... <laughs> yeah. And that that's kind of a testament to the magazine and every amazing person. And there's, you know, things to remember about the history of our magazine, because it's funny. I always go on and read our social media posts and they're like, Oh, it seems like things are skewing more towards women. And you guys seem to be like pandering to that. And I was like, Pandering towards women. I didn't respond because I was so pissed off. I'm yeah. like, you understand that Julie Simmons was the editor in chief of everything that you love. Yeah. A woman was guiding this for a decade. Yeah. 
So to say that, you know, we're we're all of a sudden now waking up to it, it's a part of our DNA. Yeah. Like that's that's something important that heavy metal was one of the first comics publications out there that had a female editor in chief. Yeah. And especially that had that market share on the newsstands. Yeah, it was I think when like early 80s around 350,000 copies at the time. Yeah, it's incredible. Well, hey, man, thanks again for coming on. Sure. Shout out some social media so everybody can follow you. Um, well, at Instagram, we're at Heavy Metal. Uh, Facebook, we're, I think it's at My Heavy Metal, but it's Heavy Metal Magazine. Mm-hmm. And then our Twitter is uh, Heavy Metal Inc., I-N-K. And for you personally? Um, I'm not, like, super active on, <laughs> on social media, but it's just my He's last hiding. name. It's, no, I'm kidding. It's at Krellitz, but I don't, I don't do a whole lot on social media. Hey, man, thanks again. Absolutely. And um, everybody, please run out. Pick up heavy metal, um, you know, like you said, 280, great, great place to start. Um, Morrison's run has just been unbelievable, and it's going to go on, and I've, I'm hearing, you know, little little uh, hints at what's to come down the road. We can't talk about here, but I'm, I'm telling you, there's some amazing stuff. So uh, until next time, you have been listening to Pod Sequentialism. I am Matt Kennedy, and we'll talk to you next week. Hello, this is Matt Kennedy from Pod Sequentialism. And um, what many, many of you may know that I, I do run a gallery in Los Angeles called La Luz de Jesus Gallery. And what you may not know is that it's inside Wacko, which is probably the greatest center of pop culture in the world. And it may sound like hyperbole. It's not. Um, you can, If you don't want to trust my judgment, you can listen to people like Kevin Smith, uh, James Gunn, uh, David Mack, um, all of whom will swear that uh, one of their favorite places on earth is uh, Wacko, the shop that houses La Luz de Jesus Gallery. Um, whether it's blind box toys or little tchotchkes or art books, it pretty much is the place that you can get all of your Christmas shopping done for every possible annoying person to buy for that you can imagine. They've got everything, and I highly recommend that you visit them. You can visit them online at soapplant.com. You can visit the gallery at laluzdejesus.com, and that's spelled L-A-L-U-Z-D-E. 